Thank you all. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to Book of Ezra, uh, chapter four. It's on page four fifty six. In my Bible, that's a dad joke. It is Father's Day, so I feel like that's reasonably appropriate. Uh, happy Father's Day. How's everybody doing? Good. All right. Just kind of barely here. Feels like. Uh, let's, well, let's, let's wake up together. Uh, I'm really, really excited to dive into God's Word today. Um, look, we're in a series called Return, Rebuild, Renew, really taking a, a, a holistic look, um, although a 30,000-foot view, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, but uh, at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, look, I think a number of us ha- have probably, some of us grew up in church, some of us have a lot of familiarity with the Bible, or, or at least some general knowledge, and perhaps we haven't really encountered uh, these books in depth. Um, there's some incredible things happening in the life of God's people in the midst of the book of Ezra. And so that's where we're going to be today, particularly in chapters 4 through 6. Um, that sounds daunting, probably, uh, to, to kind of look at three whole chapters, but we really are going to read some together because uh, a number of the things that emerge in this text uh, is just the reality that, that there is some genuine political correspondence. It's, it's some letters back and forth between people and kings, uh, and as silly or strange as that might sound to you, um, that really matters. And we're going to need to see that and how it fits into the grand narrative and the scope of what God is doing in the life of his people throughout Scripture. So before we jump into Ezra 4, uh, I want to play a little catch up and just kind of review for anybody that hasn't been here a couple of weeks ago. We talked about uh, chapter 1 of Ezra and the reality that Cyrus, the king, makes this decree. This guy's the king of Persia, um, that, that the captive... Israelites, those who have been uh, taken into exile in Babylon, were able to return. Uh, We looked at the book of Jeremiah to understand how did we get to that place? How did the Israelites come into this Babylonian exile? How did they come into this captivity? And we look into the book of Jeremiah and we see all of these incredible prophecies and the things that are going to happen to God's people because they refuse to listen to him. They refuse to trust his word. They refuse to, in Jeremiah's 23 years of preaching, return back to the God that they love. And instead, they were, they were syncretists, and they added all these other gods in, and they did these other things, and they were, they were worshiping uh, corporately, as we might, but then their lives looked nothing like those who faithfully followed the Lord. And so God allows Babylon to, to, to take, to, to capture, to exile the Israelites, and they're there for 70 years. There are people that falsely prophesy that they're going to be two years. They end up being there for 70 years And then that brings us to the place in Ezra 1 where we see these Israelites come back to come to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And this happens even through, shows how powerful God is, and we'll see more of this today, even through a pagan king. God restores his people. And then last week, so incredible, Brian Marbury teaching us and helping us reflect on the people that came. Uh, It was really amazing that we had chapter 2, this long list of people that come back. Uh, We recognize that 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 might be strange to read, just this list of, look, I I feel like when you're in the Old Testament, like some of my week is just trying to learn how to say names. 
That legitimately is, is some of what, uh, of what I'm doing. Uh, but, but there's this list, this long list of names, and, and Brian was able to help illustrate for us to recognize that these are people. These are God's people, this remnant that has come to Jerusalem. Uh, and, and we want to see in chapter 3 how they come to this place of worship as the foundation of the temple begins to be constructed. And we're drawn to not just an Old Testament idea, but the true Christian idea of remembrance, of remembering all that God has done. That's going to be a huge part of what we look at today. And that brings us to chapter 4. So we're going to read a a number of sections here. I think it's really going to help us see the story of what God is up to with his people uh, and and them rebuilding uh, and returning to him and being renewed. So this is Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And it says this, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ashardon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's house in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build this to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what's happening in this moment. It seems really strange, uh, but weren't these guys offering some help? I don't know about you, but if I'm building a temple, um, I'm probably going to let people help me. Feels like a wise move. I see some pretty bright people in here who are kind of nodding along. They're saying, yeah, I'm thinking this too. This seems like an arduous task. Maybe I should seek out some help. Free help is here. We should take it. Uh, Here's the reality. If we we read this in a cursory way, we're just, look, we're sweet people. I think I look around this room and most of the people I see, I think are really kind people. All right? Um, that was supposed to be funny, but apparently every one of you thinks that you're not that person and you're all offended now. So that backfired big time. Um, but look, here's the thing. Um, just by nature, I think a number of us, we, we're agreeable. We like to get along with folks. We don't want to start arguments. We don't want to start fights. And yet, here's the rumor bell says, no, we don't want your help. We're going to do it alone. Just us. Why is that? Look into verse 1. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard the exiles were returning to build a temple, they approached him. So right from the start, if we're really attentive, one of the things that we see is that these are people who are enemies. They are against What's happening here? They're really against the people of God. Now, that doesn't seem very clear, especially since they say, Hey, we worship your God as you do. But the history and the reality tells us that this is not the case. The people that are here, these adversaries, you see that language of Eshardon, king of Assyria. These are people who have been placed in the northern kingdom. They're likely in the northern kingdom and were once people that were taken into captivity by Assyria. So now there are these people that, that have history of worship and loving the Lord, but... 
they're captured by Assyrians, and now that type of worship, the things that the Assyrians are worshiping, the things that they're doing, is starting to meld. It's starting to blend in with the worship of Yahweh. So they have mixed worship. It's not Yahweh alone. Then they say, uh, they say, let us build with you. If you really look emphatically at how this language is constructed, they're really saying, we will build with you. We will build with you. The language that's used here is incredibly definitive. So they say, look, this is not a request. This is a statement. We're going to come alongside you and, and do this. But Zerubbabel is emphatic, and he says, look, you don't worship God the way that we do. Now, he didn't spell that out, but this is what he says as he tells them, you're not going to build with us. What's happening is Zerubbabel is somebody who's a product of the exile. This guy's seen what it means to not worship God and to not experience God and to feel the consequences, to feel the ramifications of being separated from Jerusalem, to being separated from God's promised land. And now he says, look, we're not going to assimilate and allow God's worship to be compromised. The exile gave people like Zerubbabel very clear sight and very clear mind that this remnant of people saw a picture of deliverance and hope and they're not going to give it up. They're going to exclusively worship God. So that's good. Um, But for the Israelites in this moment, temporarily, it brings an an immeasurable amount of pain. Look at verses 4 through 6 in the language that you see. Discouraged, bribed, uh, that these people were against them. They frustrated their purpose and they leveled accusations. So as the story unfolds, we're about to read another, another uh, portion of chapter 4 as we walk through uh, into chapter 6. And, and what you're going to see happen is, is this discouragement and this bribery uh, and these things being taken to a new level and a political one uh, as Rahum, who's a commander and who's kind of over the, this whole area in Jerusalem, he's been appointed there from Judah and Samaria, he is going to to appeal to the king to say, look, these Israelites, these Jewish people don't need to build this temple, and here's why. Um, Look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. This is 11 through 16, and it says this. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes the king. So a couple times we'll stop during this, but Artaxerxes is the king now. Uh, Cyrus is is dead and gone. Artaxerxes is now the king. And so that's to whom Rahum is writing. So to Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river. One more time. Let's just stop for a second. Uh, Beyond the river uh, is this administrative district. It's this area. It's this designated place that's beyond the river. So adequately named. Uh, beyond the river Euphrates and really kind of comprises all of Judah and all of Samaria. That's helpful because ultimately it really just lets us know that this guy is in Jerusalem. He's been appointed here, but but he's talking about uh, the Persian land that is back beyond. So it says this, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. 
Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that, your, that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn this, that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from, old, from of old. That, that was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is happening here is Rahum sends a letter to King Artaxerxes and says, Look, you can't trust these guys. Um, so turns out these guys that we're trying to, to help build aren't so great after all. All right? We're sending a letter to the king to say, look, you cannot trust them. Not only are they not going to provide you with custom, with tax, with, with money to fund the kingdom, which king is so rightfully yours. In addition to that, they're seditious, they're rebellious, they're a wicked people. And if you'll go back and look into the records, you'll find and see that this is true. Now, look at Artaxerxes uh, and, and what happens in response, this is chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. It says this, Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what's happening here. Um, you see a people who have, who have walked through exile. And even if many of them are younger now and haven't felt it personally, they know this story. They know this history. They know about being separated from the promised land. And now they've had the opportunity. God so powerfully works that he uses a pagan king in Cyrus to bring them to this place where they can reconstruct the temple. Why is the temple a big deal? This is the place of the presence of the Lord. This is a place where they worship. This is, this is their, their, their greatest cultural edifice. This is the, the thing that... that articulates and describes to them who they are, to all of creation, to the rest of the world, and even themselves. They get to begin to take part in this, and there's rejoicing, and now all of a sudden, it stops. They've been commanded to stop. By the same government that, that told them to go for it, now they're being told to stop. This is the life of an Israelite. One step forward and two steps back. That's what it feels like. That's what it seems like. And, and in these moments, I, I want to say this with all candor. I recognize um, that political letters are not the most dynamic uh, choices for sermons. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it right now. i got to tell you. Um, but you need to understand that there's some really, really powerful stuff that's going to emerge from this. Uh, some things that God is doing thematically in the text that we're going to be able to see and I think really put our hands on. So hang in there, hang in there. But, but for these Israelites, it's one step forward, it's two steps back. And they're really, really struggling to come to terms to, 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 to figure out, is this really our purpose? Everything seems to be stopped. First, we hurt ourselves. First, we shoot ourselves in the foot, and we're in exile because of our sin. We don't listen, Lord, we're separated. Now there's this remnant, these people who've come out, who, who return to Jerusalem, who long to trust the Lord, and, and we're being obedient, and now that, that doesn't help either. Now we're stopped as well. Why is this happening? Let's look now into chapter 5 and start to see uh, a glimmer of hope. 
This is chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It says this. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar, Bozani, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's the incredible, exciting thing that happens. In the midst of a decree that says, look, you you can't work. The work must stop. The work has to be ceased. God provides intervention. God brings Haggai and Zechariah, these prophets who are with and encouraging the monarchy. They're encouraging the Jewish people to, to build God's temple to do this. These are prophets. What are prophets? Prophets are people who are telling the truth of who God is and what he promises, what he has done, and what he will do for his people. The beautiful thing to notice here is in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this adversity, in the midst of this frustration, God's word is not absent. God's word is not void. God's word is with the prophets as they seek to minister to the people, to the Israelites here. Uh, This language, eye of the Lord or eye of their God, is a picture of God's divine providence. It's a picture that God has not abandoned or forgotten his people. It's a picture that God sees them, that they're known, that their pain, that their frustration, that their sadness, that it's identifiable and recognizable to God, and he is going to meet them in the midst of it. Um, The remainder of chapter 5 is, get this, another letter. Um, Tatanai writes to Darius, and he says, look, I want you to search the records. I want you to, he writes to the king, and he says, look, I want you to go through the records and and see if this thing about Cyrus's decree is real. Look through and tell me, are these people that are seditious, or are these people that are actually commanded to be here. They're supposed to be here. And this is what Darius does in reply. This is what he says. This is chapter 6, verses 6 through 12. It says this. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shetharbaz and I and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for for these elders of the Jews, for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. 
May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, coolest thing, there's an awesome slam here, right? So, you know, if anybody really rubs you the wrong way, you just tell them, look, I'm going to pull a beam from your house and you'll be impaled. Um, and your house apparently turns to a big pile of poop. Um, uh, that's, that's, some, that's some real Hebrew smack talk right there. Um, but look, in the, in the midst of this, uh, what's happening here is all of these things, that the, the adversity that has come to these people, it's all being reversed. It, it, it's turning around. We see Darius say, look... The decree is real. Cyrus has done this. And in order to, to compensate, to provide recompense for this, not only is the royal revenue not going to be unamassed like it was before. So, so when it's written before that, look, these Jewish people, these, these Hebrews, these Israelites, they're seditious. They're going to they're gonna try to overthrow you. They're going to fortify their city walls. They're not going to be able to pay money to the royal revenue. Now money from the royal revenue is coming to them. To help construct the temple, whatever they need. And not just occasionally, but day by day, this is to be given to them. This sounds like, well, look, Michael, that's just like political stuff. And all right, some stuff turned out in their favor. I want you to recognize the power and the gravity of what is happening here. God is turning the hearts of pagan kings. These are people who don't either know God in any way, shape, or form, or they totally reject him, or based on the nature of mixture and syncretism in a lot of these cultures, are just somewhere in between. But even that lukewarmness is offensive to God. These kings don't, don't worship Yahweh and yet Yahweh's people continually are benefiting from what's happening. How do you make sense of that? How can you, how can you, how can you say that that's, that that's happening? How can you see that? Look at Proverbs 21.1. It says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This is the power of God. So when we say things like, God will work everything out according to his purpose for the good of those who love him. Ezra's a picture of this. This is evidence of this. This is history that tells us that God is not only faithful to his people, but he'll use any means necessary and even those who don't love him, even those who hate him or are against him for your good. That's how much God loves you and me. That's the kind of love that he has for us. That he would use pagan kings to accomplish his will. I want you to look at verse 8 there. Um, this is not the, the impaling beam one. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue. The language that's used there and the way that that's constructed, in the English, those two words, without 
delay or a total inverse from what we find in chapter 4 and verse 24 when we see that they're commanded to, to the work be stopped, to cease. It's, it's from the same root. It's all, it's all together. And that sounds like really nerdy and you don't care yet. But here's the reality. This is a picture of total upheaval and reversal. Is a picture of a 180 and where God is taking the course of history and turning it. That's how powerful the God that loves you is. He loves you. And he goes to these measures, to these ends for his people. People who have been unfaithful to him. People who have professed to love him with their lips, and they haven't done it with their lives. And yet he still faithfully loves and pursues them. And then this happens in chapter 6, as we kind of wrap up, verses 13 through 15. It says this, Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bosnai, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here is what is so amazing about what happens. You ever watch uh, these movies, and I'm not like, a crazy movie buff, but I've seen enough to, to watch a few where there's just this really intriguing character development, and you get to know this person, and you're really starting to see how they're formed and shaped, not only uh, just kind of innately, but also by the experiences that they take on in whatever movie this is, and, and, and they're changing, and they're transforming, and they're becoming this thing, and all of this is happening, and then all of the sudden, the plot just drops, and it's over. Like, literally, like, you can point out, like, I think they ran out of money right there. And then the movie's over. That's it. Um, if I was writing scripture, I'd probably do it a different way because that's what happens here. Isn't the point of this, to, the, the temple? Isn't the point of this to see this thing reconstructed, to, to see a people come back to Jerusalem and construct this temple to glorify and to honor the Lord? This is what the text just says in 13 through 15. They finished it. They just finished the building. Like the, the whole thing, where every, we're building up to this giant climax and it's going to be so palpable and we're going to feel it and taste it and know it and see all of this goodness. And they just say, well, yeah, then they did it. It seems like a strange way to tell a story. But there's a really big story just in that. And here's what it is. For you and I, we, we place a, a very deep emphasis on tangible things. Just we're, we're senses people, right? We, 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 ta we, we taste and smell and touch and see and, and hear. These are the ways that we identify with our surroundings, with our circumstances, everything that surrounds us. We're always looking for a picture, a sign this moment, this one thing, in this case, it's the temple. That's the destination. That's the place. But here's the reality. God is concerned with the place, 
but he's concerned with his people more. He's concerned with his people. This isn't just about building a temple as if it was just something to do. God's worried about who these people are becoming. This is a story about who these people are becoming. It's about the journey, not just the destination. He's primarily concerned with his people and their love for him. Not just the construction of the temple, but what these people are truly becoming. Because here's the thing. You look at this temple, and what you see is one that, that, that really doesn't resemble the temple of Solomon. It's not lavish it's not extraordinary. In fact, you look back into chapter 3, and even at the foundation, there's this picture of people who are rejoicing, and this other picture of people who are weeping, and the two are intermingled. There are people who are ecstatic about the temple being reconstructed, and there are people who are honestly depressed and disappointed and heartbroken that it doesn't look like the temple that they knew before. So this temple doesn't command attention in an aesthetic way, in a way of beauty but yet it commands attention for these two very distinct and particular reasons. God used pagan kings to build his temple. Think about that. This is the length that he goes to. And here's the second thing, and what it truly, truly reveals is that God was with his people and for his people the entire time. God is with his people and for his people. Here's the last thing in chapter 6. Um, you see these people celebrate the dedication of the temple. They celebrate Passover. What's unique about it is there's this mention of, of hundreds rather than thousands. So if you're looking to Solomon's day, you see that it's thousands, but you look now and it's hundreds. In verse 17 of chapter 6, it's 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs. These things are the sin offering. The sin offering is smaller. The number of people there are smaller. What we see in chapter 2, what we see in Ezra, is a remnant of God's people. This is not the Israel of old, of thousands and thousands. It's much smaller. But they're an Israel that has seen God's chastening of them, and they're an Israel who has seen God's mercy. This is an Israel who is becoming deeply in love with God recognizing the mercy that he has demonstrated to them in this new exodus of sorts. So, so we sing these words like, you split the sea so I could walk right through it. And that's a picture of, we think of the Red Sea. That's, that, that's that imagery. There's this new exodus that's happening in the lives of these people where they, they come out of exile. They come out of exile and away from Babylonian captivity, away from Persian captivity. They're now in the land that God has created for them, and they see that mercy. Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, a few things of note um, that help us connect. And we talked about this a little bit about this in the first service. Um, but here's the reality. I think for many of us... Um, I've, I've lived a life where I've grown up in, in a number of ways where I, where I would, the goal was to like, I need to take some of this scripture and I need to apply it to my life. Um, that, and, and that's not really a, a bad principle by any means, but I think the way that we approach it is sometimes not helpful. We'll, we'll, we, we're going to take a sermon or we're going to take text or we're going to take these things. And we'll say, oh, well, I'll just take this and I'll in some sort of like behavioral modification way, I'm just going to do a little better. Or I'm just going to be a little better. I'm going to take this thing and do it. And I'm going to take things from this story and bring it into my story. 
But the reality is, if we grow in our faith and we're transformed by the truth of Scripture, we're going to recognize that our story is in here. My story is in here. This is a picture of my story before I existed. This is a picture of what God is doing in my heart, in my life now. I don't need to go find something from Scripture and try to relate it to my big, important life. No, I need to recognize that my little life, and David would say it this way, what is man that you are mindful of him? I need, to, I need to, to recognize that my life is found in here. And so here are the things that I think help us see that uh, today. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. This desire for Zerubbabel to say, no, you, you, you're not going to build with us. We're going to do this alone. Here's the premise. Truly believe that this is a picture, that this is a foretaste of what we have in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? That Zerubbabel says... This idea of mixing other things with this, that, that can't be. That's not true worship. Look, the reality is, is that the gospel, and the world will tell you differently, but the gospel is the most inclusive thing in the history of the world. Race, tongue, tribe, creed, color, background, young, old, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. The gospel is available to you and to me. It's inclusive in its offering, but it is exclusive in its claim. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That's it. It's a very definitive article. It's the. There is no other way. There is no other way. Not good behavior, not being a nice guy or gal. Not having, having the right job or the perfect family or, you know, being those people on Instagram that all of us want to be because their hair's in place and they got it together. Like, it, n- none of those things, I don't care how much money you have, I don't care how many good works that you've done, if these things are apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's no life there. The gospel is exclusive in its claim. And look, I I know I'm supposed to say that because I'm a pastor. But I will look you in the eye and tell you there's been plenty of times in my life where I've sat with somebody who I deeply love, who I've experienced a lot of life with, that I care about. And I wished it wasn't true. Because I knew that they weren't following Jesus and that they didn't believe he was the way, the truth, and the life. And you struggle with that, right? You battle with that. People give Christians a hard time because they say, look, you think you're better than everybody. Like, actually, the proclamation of the gospel is the reality that I'm actually worse than everyone. I'm worse than everybody. I'm the chief of sinners. All of us are that. We all have this deep need. So, Could we model what Zerubbabel does and say, look, it's not extra stuff. It's not anything else. There can be nothing else other than Jesus. And you're like, well, what does that look like? Well, you see it in Galatia. You see it in 1 Corinthians. We walk through it together in Colossians. In Colossae, there are all these people that are saying, well, it's Jesus, but it's also new moons and festivals and circumcision, or or it's got to be the spirits, you know? Like, well, we sing the doxology uh, 
praise God above ye heavenly hosts, right? Like, most people are like, wait, wait, why do they put that line in there, right? But it's, it's a picture to remind us that there is nothing that we can worship except God, Father, as Son, and as Spirit Himself, not angels or anything else. It's exclusive. It's the Trinity. It's Father, it's Jesus the Son, and it's the Holy Spirit. This is the God that we worship. There can be no other God. We can't mix other stuff with it. It's not Jesus plus anything. Here's the second thing that emerges. Um, the prophets in 5.2. We see Haggai uh, and, and Zechariah, these prophets that come alongside these people. This is a picture that God's word is with his people. And this is a picture of what will come later. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that the Word dwelt among us. This is how deeply loved God's people are by Him and His heart. That He gives us Himself, He gives us His Son, and the Word of God isn't just given to us, to be toward us, it's with us. And it takes on our flesh. This is a picture of what will come in Jesus. Here's the third thing. The hostility and adversity that we face. Look, the reality is, I think for a number of us, we experience life. You might have experienced it this week where there are, are moments where people have attacked you. Uh, they've questioned your character. They've been unkind to you. They, they've tried to thwart. They've tried to stop. They've tried to cease whatever work is happening in your life. And the gospel tells us this. In this world, we will have trouble. Not like may see some or it could get dicey, but you know, you could be okay. No, like we're going to have trouble. And yet the comfort that we're given, the balm that we're given is that Jesus Christ has overcome the world. This is a picture of the hostility that will continue to come to God's people. And yet we're called to go back again, to remember him again, to trust in him again. And here's the last thing. In all of these events that happens, these people being brought out of exile to their place to deal with all this adversity and then to come to a place where they're actually able to, to, to build the temple, they remember, they recognize, they see what God's done. When we do that, it ought to elicit worship. And, and we have plenty of reasons to be thankful and to remember God's faithfulness to us. Like I can look around this room and think of, of, of genuine stories. I mean, I, I look at families who, who are dedicating their children this morning. I mean, you have, a, you have a tangible way to remember and thank God for his goodness to you. I look around and I see stories in this room of people that have been miraculously saved, healed, loved, cared for, ministered to. And I think in my own life, um, look, I, I saw miracles happen this week. Like actual miracles, things that like just, <laughs> come find me, I'll tell you later because it's a long story. Um, Things that, that, that the enemy would try to put a stop to. Um, where he would try to take and, and not just maybe harbor a grievance again, but end life. And yet God, through the work of, 
this is nuts to say out loud. Pagan people. I'm pointing at Mia because she knows the story the best. Um, but like, he loves us. And he gives us reasons to see it, to remember it. Can we be people that worship him as a response? That's got to be the response. That's got to be what characterizes us as who we are as people that trust God. I hope these things this morning, I'm going to ask our worship team to come, but I hope these things this morning help you to see that your life looks like this life. Because it is. And the beautiful thing about that is it tells the end. The victory, the hope, the culmination of the resurrection life that we live in that is coming. Um, So I want to take a moment this morning and ask you just to bow your head. Um, And and as music begins to play, and it will, don't let it startle you, um, I, I want you to think about and really try to reflect and remember what it is that God has done. And that that should elicit and draw out worship in your heart. And I'm not talking about just singing or raising your hands, but I'm talking about your heart right now in the moment where you sit being turned toward God and saying, God, I I see how you've seen me. I see that your eye has been on me, that you've noticed me, that you've seen me in moments of affliction and pain, and yet you've ministered to me, you've comforted me, you've given me life through your Son, by your Spirit, and you've blessed me. And you may be in a moment where it's hard to remember the goodness because right now, for whatever reason, you're only feeling pain. And this would be my encouragement to you. Whatever adversity, hostility you're facing, God's word and himself in Jesus Christ is with you. Do not forget that. And surround yourselves with people that will proclaim that truth to you. So Heavenly Father, as we come to a time where we seek to respond, where we seek to live out the remembrance of all the goodness, of all the things that you have done, God, would you cause us to trust you, not just with loud voices or raised hand, Father, but with hearts that would leave this place longing to remember your goodness and to living out the gospel. Father, we were not sinking in sin. We were dead at the bottom, and you raised us through through grace. God, grace through faith. You allowed us to, to repent and trust you because you moved in us by your spirit, and you made us yours. So God, would would you draw people in this place to yourself? Would you draw us to yourself in remembrance and worship in these moments? In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.